Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. Rethink tells us we should not treat people for COPD unless we prove that they have COPD still defined by airflow limitation and FEV1 over FVC less than 0.7 on a spirometry test. I think that's what it shows. Today, pulmonologist Drs. Jill O'Har and Robbie Callen join the podcast to discuss the Rethink trial. What did we learn? And what do we do now in this PV Roundup special spotlight? Boehringer Engelheim has 100 years of heritage in respiratory disease. Since 1921, they have emerged as a leader in this disease area, having launched several treatments in a range of pulmonary conditions, including asthma, COPD, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and lung cancer. Their focus is on improving the quality of life of patients suffering from debilitating respiratory diseases and enabling them to maintain a more independent life. Learn more at BoehringerEngelheim.com. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not represent the views of Boehringer Engelheim or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Jill O'Hare. I'm a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I'm Ravi Calhan. I'm a professor of medicine and preventive medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Ravi, today I'd like to discuss with you the Rethink study that was recently uh, published in the New England Journal. We're very fortunate that you are part of the Rethink study group. Now that we've had some time to think about Rethink, and the results of the study and what they mean to those of us who treat current or former smokers, I have some questions for you, okay? I'm ready. All right. First, can you briefly take us through the study and its objectives? Yeah. I need to know a little bit about the patient population, treatments, important evidence gaps this study tries to cover, and some of the limitations. Sure. So, you know, Rethink was a study that was informed by a really important paper that came from an observational study called Spiromics. Spiromics is a study of smokers that endeavors to understand why some people get COPD and some don't and the variable expressions of COPD among smokers. And a few years ago, in a really important finding that was reported also in the New England Journal of Medicine, that smokers who do not have airflow limitation, meaning they don't meet the clinical definition of COPD, their, their lung function is normal, normal spirometry, that those people still had a high degree of symptoms, had tons of respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, sputum, et cetera, had CT scan findings that were consistent with airways problems, thickened airway walls, chronic bronchitis type appearing stuff. And actually, were prescribed by their doctors medications as if they had COPD. So they were on inhaled bronchodilators. Some people were on inhaled corticosteroids. But it turns out, and Jill, you know this better than anyone because you've participated in practically all the COPD studies of bronchodilators and other inhaled therapies. People who don't have airflow obstruction are not included in those studies. So there's no clinical trials database to support the use of bronchodilators in those individuals yet. Tons of them were prescribed bronchodilators. So Rethink endeavored to answer that question. Among people who smoked 
greater than 10 pack years of cigarettes in their lifetime, who have significant respiratory symptoms as defined by the COPD assessment test, does giving those individuals bronchodilators, in this case, it was a combination long-acting beta agonist um, and long-acting muscarinic antagonist, a labolama combination into glycopyrrolate, does giving people that medicine actually do anything for them? Pretty interesting question in a way because it has nothing to do with anyone who's been tested with those therapies before. It's a great question. And, and part of your discussion of the setup of this trial was that all of these patients had X-ray or CT abnormalities consistent with airways disease. Is that true? Because I don't think it's that we listed right. in the paper. But I was thinking spiromics, that was true. So the, the, the informative part of this, that the rationale for the question was based on that notion. I in in yes. Rethink, there are no CT scans. So we don't know the extent to which the population studied in Rethink actually replicates what was reported in that prior observational study, which provided the rationale for this. So that's a hang-up. It's really a point of uncertainty. And it, it turns out that Rethink, there's no benefit in the Rethink study. We should just come out and say it. Rethink shows that giving symptomatic people with a smoking history bronchodilators does not improve their symptoms in 12 weeks' time. There was a small increase in their lung function, probably not in the range of what you and I as pulmonologists would consider clinically that important. There was a 100 ml increase in the inspiratory capacity. I guess you and I could go deep and geek out on whether that's a meaningful difference in the inspiratory capacity, but it's probably not all that meaningful someone who didn't have airport obstruction to begin with. And the rest of it is null. Their symptoms are not better. Their exercise capacity is not better. None of it is better. So Rethink tells us we should not treat people for COPD unless we prove that they have COPD still defined by airflow limitation and FEV1 over FEC less than 0.7 on a spirometry test. I think that's what it shows. Yeah, now, I agree. I think that's one of the really important lessons um, that this study taught us was that only people to this date, the only data we have, the only people that benefit by bronchodilators are people who have documented airflow obstruction. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I know we all get patients referred to us on bronchodilators with a clinical diagnosis of COPD, which means, well, they cough, they have sputum, they smoke. Um, they may even have some abnormalities on um, chest X-ray or chest CT. They may have some emphysema. Um, and they've never had a pulmonary function test. So I think this, this study really kind of highlights stop, get a diagnosis, first. Um, and I'll tell you, Joel, I've been, I've been guilty of it too. During COVID-19, I wasn't doing much spirometry. And I sort of, I, I was in an existential mode maybe of my career, but I was like, why do I do so much spirometry anyway? We'll just see if a bronchodilator helps. Well, then this study got published and it turns out it doesn't help. And I personally have pre pressed reset on this, that 
we really do need to do pulmonary function testing. Full stop. So, so what do you think some of the limitations of this study are? Yeah, well, I think you mentioned the biggest one is that if you take a population of people who smoked cigarettes, general population, and randomize them to a study, and all we know is that they smoked cigarettes and had symptoms, maybe it's an unreasonable expectation to think that those people are going to benefit from an airways-targeted bronchodilator therapy unless we do a little bit more phenotyping to understand what their deal is. I mean, these folks, some of them, if we did a CT scan, might have had emphysema and airways changes that make us think an inhaled medication delivered to the airways might be beneficial. I bet you a lot of them, people, you know, over 50, mean age 60, who smoked cigarettes, a lot of them have a BMI over 30, about half, those folks undoubtedly have diastolic dysfunction and obstructive sleep apnea and deconditioning and knee arthritis, all these things that limit activity and make people short of breath. And unless we do something to understand a little deeper what the drivers of the breathlessness are, I'm not sure we'll achieve the goal of delivering therapy that's going to be beneficial to these folks. So the biggest limitations to me are we don't have better lung and heart phenotyping to understand what we think the purported cause of their breathlessness, cough, sputum, conglomerate of respiratory symptoms is before giving the therapy. So, you know, it's hard to do clinical trials. I'm not trying to indict the design here, but it would be great if we knew more. So if you were going to redesign, and, and I think that's the, that's the beauty of science, and, and I think you've highlighted that already, the idea that, that we learned stuff from this study, important lessons from this study. So now the next step, if you were going to, based on this study, if you were going to design a new study, would you look at, would you enroll only people who have CT evidence of airways disease? Would you include people who have CT evidence of emphysema? Would you look for people who had evidence of, of uh, air trapping or hyperinflation and either enroll them or exclude them? Would you get an echo to exclude people who have diastolic dysfunction? And finally, is there a different agent that you might think about using, like one of the PDE? four inhibitors or azithromycin or something like that? Yeah. Well, you know, in my opinion, we, and we just went on about how you need to diagnose COPD by spirometry, and I still think that's true. But I think we've hurt progress in the COPD field by never forcing the issue about testing therapies based on a broader phenotyping strategy beyond just spirometric impairment, beyond just lung function. So I would advocate, particularly in this population, but maybe in general, that we should test therapies in COPD on the basis of what a CT scan looks like. In an emphysema-predominant person versus an airways-predominant person, what are the correct therapies and how should we apply them? In this case, it seems really important. If there's not a whiff of emphysema or an airways problem in someone and their lung function's normal, what are we thinking that giving a bronchodilator is going to actually do something? That person should have a cardiac workup, right? If they came to us in clinic and we did all those tests and we saw nothing wrong with their lungs, we would say, there's nothing wrong with your lungs. 
we wouldn't say try a bronchodilator. And I think that's true in this case too. So if I were to design this study again, I would probably say we should make part of the inclusion criteria, not just smoking, not just symptoms, but also a CT scan evidence of airways abnormalities. Or, or maybe emphysema, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of hung up on the airways as a, as a earlier manifestation of what could be there. Um, or, I don't know, Jill, you're, you know lung physiology better than I do for sure. Is the inspiratory capacity something to center a trial like this around? Or are there other things that could be done? Well, certainly the IC is a, an indirect measure of, of air trapping. Um, we know that, that air trapping can limit exercise capabilities. And um, so that would be certainly a target in these earlier COPD patients. Um, I, I guess my other question to you would be, is there, would you think of a different class of agents other than bronchodilators? What about inhaled glucocorticoids? What about antibiotics? What about um, phosphodiesterase inhibitors? Yeah, I, I, I think ICS in this group, there's something compelling about that in my view. Um, and it's informed by the notion, and this is, this is somewhat reinforced by clinical trials, and, but it's largely enforced by clinical observation with me, and I'd be curious what your experience is too, Jill, is that there are subsets of patients who have respiratory symptoms that for whatever reason end up on an inhaled corticosteroid-containing regimen, usually with a bronchodilator, and they just feel much better. And then it turns out when you try to get off that inhaled corticosteroid regimen, they feel much worse. And we don't have systematic evaluation of what the deal is with those people. I, and I, I do wonder, smoker who has symptoms, especially if it's cough and sputum production, whether testing an ICS actually would get a lot more mileage than just giving bronchodilators. I wonder, um, in this setting, would you be interested in grabbing um, peripheral blood eosinophil counts first and enrolling people who have high eosinophils or would you stratify patients according to their peripheral eosinophil count or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's interesting too. And, you know, this population of people who smoked cigarettes and have normal lung function, if they had high eosinophils, you could sit around and wonder whether they actually have asthma and they smoked cigarettes. Um, at least I would sit around and wonder that. And they'll never be included in an asthma study because they smoked cigarettes and they are not eligible for a COPD study because they have normal lung function. So then they're just a symptomatic smoker. And I really do wonder, sort of, do these people have sort of this reactive airways disease or some other thing that is common? Certainly smoking doesn't mean you don't have asthma-like features to your condition. And eosinophilia in the blood is, a, is another piece of the puzzle when we think about who might have an asthma-like or ICS-responsive condition. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as we look at the new gold guidelines and this concept of pre-COPD, the idea that patients who are symptomatic and happen to have CT abnormalities that center around the airways, I think are just that phenotype that you're thinking about um, who smoke and probably also happen to have asthma. Um, and, and 
Of course, we don't have eosinophil information, certainly in, in this rethink study with regard to these people. Is there any takeaway that you'd like to, to give us before we conclude today? Yeah, well, I think if we're going to take a, an honest view of what we learned from Rethink, and I said this earlier, but I just want to say it again just as a, as a key point, is that it really does provide important information that there is no a priori reason to think that someone who doesn't have airflow obstruction is going to benefit from bronchodilators. Now, in clinical practice, that doesn't mean you and I in front of an individual patient doesn't think about things, get expanded information. Maybe if we got a CT scan in clinic and saw things that sure look like COPD type features, we might try it on an individual patient. But in general, this study says don't do it. Get lung function testing when someone is symptomatic and has a smoking history and then make a decision about their. And then I think the other big lesson is that we need to do more phenotyping as part of our clinical trial design as we determine eligibility, not just in symptomatic smokers, pre-COPD thinking, in COPD in general, to just make decisions based on whether you have normal or abnormal spirometry, to me seems like, like we're not going to move the field forward in a, in a, in a big way at this point. Well, Ravi, this has been a great conversation, and I really want to thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Jill. Great to chat with you. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like this, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Drs. Jill Ohar and Robbie Callen, and to Sean Mullen and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.